We're reading from Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 to 18. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of the gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of music, all the nations and people of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this manner. If we are thrown at the blazing furnace, the God we serve is, is able to deliver us from it, and, and he will deliver us your majesty, from your majesty's hand. But if he, if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now to Luke, chapter 6, 27 to 28. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Love them. Do good to those who hate you. Do good. Bless those who curse you. Bless them. And pray for those who mistreat you. Well, a few days ago, our family was gathered around the table. At least some of us in the family were gathered. It's uh, busy summer nights. We're not always there at the same time. But we were having this conversation, and I think Sophia was saying something about her back being sore. And, and her mother pointed out, well, you get that from your father. And that's kind of how the conversation went for the next few minutes, like lamenting all of the things that my children have wrong with them that comes from me. This is kind of the way things roll. It's an ongoing conversation. But I'm sure that in the grand scheme of things, I've passed on one or two good things as well. Jamie Smith writes that we are historical creatures. We come from somewhere. 
engendered by a constellation of someones who made us in all kinds of ways. Genealogy, he writes, is always a voyage of self-discovery. I love that line in that image, this idea that looking back at those who have come before us helps us understand who we are. Well, the summer series is about our collective genealogy, a voyage of self-discovery as we look at how just a handful of men and women have lived out their Christian faith and how the way that they have lived out their faith has in some ways shaped and formed how we might live out our own faith today. Two weeks ago, I referred to a Gallup poll that was taken at the end of 1999 to to ask Americans who the most influential people of the 20th century were. And the person I talked about that morning was number one, Mother Teresa. She was the the most influential people in the minds of Americans. Well, this morning, I'm going to talk about the person who was number two, Martin Luther King Jr. In the line of one of my favorite James Taylor songs, let us turn our thoughts today to Martin Luther King and recognize that there are ties between us, all men and women living on the earth, ties of hope and love, sister and brotherhood, that we are bound together in our desire to see the world become a place in which our children can grow free and strong. We are bound together by the task that stands before us and the road that lies ahead. We are bound, we are bound. Martin Luther King was an American Baptist minister and activist who became the most visible spokesperson and leader in the civil rights movement from 1954 until his death in 1968. As an 18-year-old, King chose to enter the pastoral ministry, believing that the church offered the best way to answer an inner urge to serve humanity. When I read that, I thought, I wonder how many people respond in the same way today saying, I have this urge inside of me that's burning, and I just want to make the world a better place, and they would say the church is the best place to do that. It's an interesting question for us to think about. He married Coretta Scott in 1953, and soon after, at the age of 25, was called as the pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. Reflecting back on this stage of his life many years later, he said, before I was a civil rights leader, I was a preacher of the gospel. This was my first calling, and it still remains my greatest commitment. You know, actually, all that I do in civil rights, I do because I consider it part of my ministry. I have no other ambitions in life but to achieve excellence in Christian ministry. I don't plan to run for political office. I don't plan to do anything but remain a preacher. And what I'm doing in this struggle, along with many others, grows out of my feeling that the preacher must be concerned about the whole man. Well, in 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a city bus. There were signs and sections saying blacks could only sit in one section while whites had to sit in another, and she said, nah, I'm tired, I'm just going to sit right here. Well, she was arrested, and it led to the organization from King's basement church office of the Montgomery bus boycott, which lasted for 385 days. For 385 days, more than a year, colored people in Montgomery refused to ride the buses. They walked, they biked, they carpooled, and they ran the Montgomery bus system into an economic turmoil. After a U.S. District Court ruling ended racial segregation on all Montgomery public buses, King was transformed into a national figure. Newspaper accounts and televised footage of the plight of Southern blacks produced a wave of sympathetic public opinion that swelled the civil rights movement. People all across the country saying, this isn't right, it shouldn't be this way. And King organized and led marches for blacks' rights to vote, for desegregation, for labor rights, and other issues of the day. An example would be in Birmingham, Alabama, in 1963, where people occupied public spaces with marches. 
and sit-ins, openly violating laws that they considered to be unjust. And during this time, King experienced the 13th of his 29 arrests, writing a profound letter that is simply known as Letter from a Birmingham Jail. I thought it was interesting as I was reflecting on that, that one of the, the fathers of faith that we're talking about was arrested 29 times. It's an interesting piece. I've actually heard it suggested that this letter of his be added to future printings of the Bible. Now, I'm not suggesting that this happened, and I don't think it ever will, but the idea is that what he writes in this letter from this prison is so much like one of the pastoral epistles that Paul would have written, and it it speaks to such important, significant issues of Christian faith that this is something that Christians should be reading and digesting and applying in their lives. I want to read a few excerpts from it uh, for you this morning, and I think you'll understand why it's held in such high regard. The letter is initially addressed to my dear fellow clergymen. You see, King was the president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and this particular group of clergy that he was writing to had denounced the demonstrations that King's group was organizing, and they were questioning why King was bringing his fight to their city. Why are you coming here disturbing the peace with all of this business? He writes, I'm in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. He alludes to Paul's story, and part of that is recorded in Acts chapter 20, Paul's own words in verses 22 and 23. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prisons and hardships are facing me. King went on to say, I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Justice was a key theme for King, and the lack of it compelled him to action, like the prophet Amos, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. King called for justice in his nation. He would continue to say, it's unfortunate that demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham, but it is even more unfortunate that the city's white power structure left the Negro community with no alternative. He goes on in his letter to explain his rationale. How did we get to this place? He said, we've got a strategy, and it goes like this. The first thing we do is we collect the facts. We come into a city, we listen to people, we observe the facts, we read the reports, we see what's really going on to see if there's a need for intervention. He said, then we seek to negotiate. Unfortunately, most people won't negotiate with us because of the color of our skin. So we move on to the third step, which is self-purification. We have to make sure that our hearts are right. Before we get involved in any kind of public action, we have to make sure that our hearts are right. He says specifically, we began a series of workshops on nonviolence, and we repeatedly asked ourselves, are you able to accept blows without retaliating? Are you able to to endure the ordeal of jail? And in this vein, King was inspired by the work of Gandhi and, of course, of Jesus himself. We read in Matthew 5 from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' words, You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. But for King, a call to nonviolence was not the end of the story. If there was nothing to be gained by negotiation, on the other side of this self-purification, of this heart check, they would be involved in direct action. He describes it this way, that nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks so to dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly opposed violent tension, but there is a constructive, nonviolent tension which is necessary for growth. I was away last Sunday, but I listened to the podcast of Graham's sermon on St. Francis of Assisi, and he, he used this analogy of, of muscles and how if we don't use certain muscles of our faith, they atrophy, and, and we have to work really hard at building up the strength again. Well, if we can kind of continue that analogy, the way that a muscle grows is through tension, by exerting tension, by lifting weights or performing exercises, actually the muscle fibers tear. And it's the tension that tears the muscle, and then the body begins to heal itself, and in the healing, the muscle is expanded and grows. I apologize if it's awkward for you to see a picture of me without a shirt on on the screen, but I just wanted to illustrate my point. So here's an example of someone intentionally causing tension uh, from this past week. If you've been reading the news at all, you would have read about the spat that Canada is involved with in with Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia has arrested a couple of women's rights protesters. Um, without getting into all of the details, these are a couple of women who have been active in advocating for women's rights in Saudi Arabia. And so they were arrested, and a Canadian government official issued a statement basically condemning this. Like, no, they have the right to speak up for their rights. They shouldn't be thrown in jail. And the result has been a firestorm. Saudi Arabia has canceled all trade with Canada. They have recalled all students studying in Canadian uh, educational institutions. They have recalled all patients in Canadian hospitals to come back to Saudi Arabia. And this affects local people. I, I was listening on the news, uh, a local um, professor from one of our universities said, I think it was 50 or 55 students from just one of our local schools will be, have to leave their school and leave their studies to go home. And so there's this spat taking place, and, and the demand is that Canada needs to apologize for getting involved in Saudi Arabia's business. And, and our Prime Minister stood up and said that Canada will not be apologizing for standing up for Canadian values and for human rights, even if it risks ruffling the feathers of a global partner. You can look at this and say, man, why shouldn't you just have kept your mouth shut? It's getting yourself involved in someone else's business. But this is what Martin Luther King was saying about creating tension, that pushing, pushing someone to, to see what is really going on in the world around them. King wrote saying, it is an historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. He goes on to say, for years now I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. So one of our readings this morning comes from the words of Jesus in Luke 6, directed to those of you who are listening. To those of you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. 
Pray for those who mistreat you. This short verse packed with calls to action, to love, do good, bless, pray for, to those who are listening. King writes that in this letter that human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be co-workers with God. King's persistence was an echo of the famous words of his namesake more than 400 years earlier. Martin Luther, a member of the Catholic Church who stood up and literally nailed his argument against a number of the practices that he had a problem with of the church, he critiqued them and he stood there and said when he was brought before the people who would be responsible for his fate, he said, here I stand. I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. And Martin Luther King Jr. did the same kind of thing. This is where I stand. I can't do anything else. This is what God has called us to as followers of Christ. Now, in our reading from Daniel 3, we find three young men who were literally unwilling to bend a knee to the powers that be. King Nebuchadnezzar invites all of the people of influence in the surrounding areas. He was a very powerful king at that point in world history. And he has everyone bow before this giant statue. Now, if we were like a really edgy church, or let's just say a church with a lot of money that we didn't know what to do with, we could have done what this church in Australia did, which is have a custom-made life-size replica statue of this statue of King Nebuchadnezzar's made, and that would have been a way to promote what we're doing here this morning. But we didn't spend our money on that. But uh, so this is like a life-size version of that statue. And so everyone from, from the entire land, including all of the, the leaders, the political leaders, the military leaders, everyone had to come, and they had to bow down and worship in front of this statue. I want to pick up that passage again from Daniel 3, verses 16 to 18. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar. That's my own version of how they said it. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Walter Brueggemann writes that prophets represent the alternative consciousness. They provide us with the voice of God, which is always the counterscript for the false narratives of empire. For these young men, the, the narrative of the empire was that the king was, the king was God, and that he was to be worshipped, and he was to be bowed down before, before, and that no one could cross him. And these three said, no, actually, you've got this wrong. We serve actual God, and we're not bowing down to you. I love the way these three amigos express their belief that God is able to save them, but then they go on to say that it doesn't really matter if he does or not because we're not bowing down. Here we stand. We cannot do otherwise. God help us. Well, we left the story hanging in midair, but the short of it is that the king loses his mind over this arrogant response of theirs and has the three young men thrown into the fiery furnace. End of story. Except, of course, that it's not the end of the story at all. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. 
Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. That's a better ending. That's a better ending, much happier ending here this morning. But of course, the only reason that sentence has any power is that they were willing to go into the fire. A command for someone to walk out of the fire only works if they walked into it in the beginning. Well, the story goes on. The king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Absolutely, Martin Luther King Jr. caused a lot of problems. He made a lot of people upset. But he was also promoted by those who believed in his cause. In 1964, he received the Nobel Peace Prize for combating racial inequality through nonviolent resistance. He considered the winning of this prize a commission to work harder than I had ever worked before for the brotherhood of man. Now, despite the huge leaps forward that resulted from King's civil rights work, racial tension is anything but a story from our past. Just this weekend, Spike Lee's new film, Black Klansman, has been released, a story about a, a black police officer infiltrating the KKK and actually becoming the leader of the local chapter of the KKK. Not just a story from the past, but a story that speaks to the tension that exists today. Over the last couple of years, we've seen all kinds of headlines in the news about the movement of Black Lives Matter. This morning is the anniversary of a white nationalist rally in Charlottesville, and you may recall the story of, of someone who drove through a crowd of protesters, those who were protesting this rally, and one woman was killed, many others sent to hospital. And so we hear about these things, and we see it happening in the world around us. King reflects, in 1957, when a group of us formed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, we chose as our motto to save the soul of America. We were convinced that we could not limit our vision to certain rights for black people, but instead affirmed the conviction that America would never be free or safe from itself until the descendants of its slaves were loosed completely from the shackles they still wear. It's such an interesting observation that it wasn't just a racial group that needed to be set free, but it was the entire nation. Because the people who enslaved people were slaves themselves for doing that. And so their vision was bigger than just a certain rights for a certain group of people. Now, I'm no protester. And in a sense, we have to be honest to admit that the issues around race are are much stronger and much more tense with our neighbors to the south. But I still, over the past couple of years, have sought to learn from the experience of others, sitting down and talking with people face-to-face, reading books, listening to podcasts, reading articles, trying to wrap my head around the issues that are at the heart of the tension and the anger and the hatred that's going on in our world. King wrote, I'm grateful to God that through the influence of the Negro church, the way of nonviolence became an integral part of our struggle. And so there's no doubt that the churches of his day had significant influence on King's work. But it's equally true to say that they missed countless opportunities along the way. I must honestly reiterate, he says, that I have been disappointed with the church. I do not say this as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say this as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who is nurtured in its bosom, who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings, and who will remain true to it as long as the cord of life shall lengthen. So he gave thanks for the way that the church got alongside him, but he also critiqued it and said there are so many people who remain silent, and it's not okay. 
So there's a couple of good questions for us to ask. We'll do this as we sit around our tables in a bit. What will those on the front lines fighting against injustice today say about our church? What role will we play or fail to play in seeing God's justice roll on like a river? Again from Jamie Smith, he says, what faithful presence looked like in the year 410 is different from what it was in 1610 and 2016. The same policy proposal could be faithful in one age and unfaithful in the next. A creative way to bend society towards shalom in one context and a distorted unjust strategy in another. This is why sophisticated Christian cultural analysis and social engagement must be rooted in a deeply historical posture, a sense of our embeddedness in time, and a healthy attention to the specifics of the moment in which we find ourselves. This series is an exercise in looking back, rooting ourselves in our history, but we're doing this so we can learn how to rise to the challenge of our own cultural moment. Let's take a moment and look at a clip that will certainly be familiar to most of you. was part of the March on Washington in which more than 250,000 people gathered at the National Mall. It took place just over 55 years ago on August 28, 1963, where King demanded the riches of freedom and the security of justice. When we allow freedom to ring, he said, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Martin Luther King was assassinated on April 4th, 1968 at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Here's an excerpt from a speech given the day before his death. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. 
and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Just days after King's assassination, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1968. Just a couple of months before his assassination, at the Ebenezer Baptist Church, and speaking about how he wished to be remembered after his death, King shared these words. And I'll close with this before we lead into a time of communion. I'd like somebody to mention on that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I want you to say that day that I tried to be right on the war question. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to feed the hungry. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try in my life to clothe those who were naked. I want you to say on that day that I did try in my life to visit those who were in prison. And I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. Yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind. But I just want to leave a committed life behind. It's a powerful life, powerful words that continue to speak to us today. And so we're going to share communion. I wanted to do it at the end of this service today for two reasons. One, because the message of King was one of brotherhood and sisterhood, of unity amongst differences. And communion is a time when we remember that despite our variety of differences, that we're part of one body. And so as we come forward and we take the cup and the bread, we remember that we are not as divided as we might think. And so I invite you to come with that in mind. I also wanted to do it at the end because King lived a life of self-sacrifice, and he did so because of someone else who lived a life of self-sacrifice, because of Jesus. That was his role model. That was the inspiration, the life that Jesus did, living out this life of nonviolence, living a life willing to, to lay himself down because he saw something better for humanity. And we believe as we share in this this morning that we are rehearsing the most significant part of our faith, that Christ's body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us for the forgiveness of sin. And so as you come this morning, think of that as well. And let's all think about whether a committed life is something that we want to invite God, to, we want to offer to God this morning. So I'd invite you to come forward. Those who are serving can come and take their places at the front. And we'll just start at the front and move toward the back. And we invite you to take the elements back to your seat with you. The band is going to sing a song. It'll be probably unfamiliar to you. So just kind of listen to the lyrics as you come and as you sit in your seats and reflect on what we've talked about so far this morning. And once everyone has had a chance to come, I'll come back up and we'll pray and share those elements together.
Still stands. Great is Your faithfulness. 
reflecting on the way that someone has lived out their faith. And as I said earlier this morning, we don't do this just to learn some history. We do it to help shape and form how we live today. And so we're doing this with the greatest story of all and the greatest challenge of all. We remember that Christ's body was broken for us. And it's a call for us to be willing to break our own bodies, to live that committed life, to walk into that fiery furnace, trusting that God will prevent us from going there, and even if he doesn't, we're walking anyway. So with thanksgiving, let's share in this bread, remembering that Christ's body was broken for us. that King said in his speech at the National Mall was that he'd come to cash a check. And he goes on with this illustration of, it's time for us to, to get what we're owed, to get what we deserve here. And I was just thinking now, thinking about this cup that we hold here. Jesus wrote a check. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And he said, this is what you get on the other side of it. Forgiveness. So that's what I'm proclaiming here this morning. That's the story that I'm telling the story this morning, the story that Jesus told us of forgiveness. And we cash in on it every time we remember that his blood was shed for us for the forgiveness of sin. Let's do that with thanksgiving this morning. Lord, we have so much to be grateful for, so much to be thankful for for your body and blood shed for us, for the bodies and, and blood that has been shed down all through these years, literally and figuratively, as men and women of faith have followed you in their own day and their own time. And God, it's, it's a call to us and an invitation for us to do the same. So I pray that we would leave this place with a, with a fire in our hearts and a desire to be that kind of change in our own world. As we gather around tables, use us to challenge and sharpen one another by faith. Help us to be the kind of church that comes alongside people who are doing your work in this world. Help us to be a community that does your work in this world. And we would get to see at least a taste of the vision that the prophets had, the vision that Jesus has, the vision that your church has always had of your kingdom breaking into this world. Thanks for all of this and make ourselves available for your service in Christ's name. Amen. So we will invite you, as we do each week, to make your way through the lobby and into the gym. We have tables set up. I've written some questions on this morning's theme. I invite you to, to dive in on that conversation. We'll do that until the top of the hour when we'll formally dismiss our time. Um, for those who are looking for some prayer, the first couple of pews will be set aside for that for the next little while. And for those who want to join me for that conversation upstairs, I'll be heading there now. So uh, 
with God's peace, let's leave this room and head out to continue 